So while there are about 2,000 years separating us and the church in Corinth in the first century, there are many parallels between our world, our culture, and the world and the culture of first century Corinth. Corinth was given over to this drive to pursue things like status and image and wealth and power and success. Wisdom for them was any strategy, any method, any insight that allowed them to gain those things. And so wisdom for them said, hey, you should pursue success that brings self-worth and self-importance. You should self-define your identity and your meaning and your purpose. You should boast in the people that you know and the relationships that you have. You should boast in your skill and your intelligence and your education and your personality and your gifting because all of those things will bring success to you. This was the world that the Corinthians swam in. Such was the, the, the culture that the church faced and much the same way we face these things in our culture today. Self-reliant, self-determining, self-obsessed. These things can define our culture. And then look, this shouldn't surprise us that the world is this way. It should not. The problem is, is when this comes into the church. And this is exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth. This worldly wisdom was infecting and influencing the culture of the church. And here was the result. You had selfishness and pride rather than love and humility. You had people competing with each other rather than sacrificing for one another. You had shallow spirituality and ungodly character rather than deep spiritual formation and godly character. You had people giving priority to image and status and gifting rather than love and service. All of this was creating deep problems in the church. Rather than faith and unity, there was fear and division. Over and over and over, worldly wisdom was causing problems in the church in Corinth. Now look, for us, obviously 2020 has been a difficult year. Uh, like trial and suffering, you go to funky places in trial and suffering, right? It has been hard. But one of the things that the trial of 2020, whether it's been the pandemic or the cultural upheaval or the political turmoil we faced, one of the things that that has all done is that it has exposed some things. It has shown that the church has been too often living with a healthy dose of worldly wisdom. Because when you peel back the veneer, when you look at what 2020 is exposed, what do you see in the church? Too often you see selfishness and pride rather than love and humility. You see people competing with one another rather than sacrificing for one another. You see shallow spirituality and ungodly character rather than deep spiritual formation and godliness. You see a priority placed on image and success and status rather than love and service. We see fear and division rather than faith and unity. Friends, I, I want you to know, First City, I love you. I am so proud of you. But we need to be honest about the ways that this has even affected us. The, the way that worldly wisdom has come into our community and affected our church. Because at the, at, while 2020 and while the, the trial and suffering has exposed some things, there's also great hope for us. Uh, look, there is salvation and there is forgiveness and there is healing and there is transformation and there is renewal for us. 
The hope of the gospel is held out for us. And what this trial and what this suffering does is it shows us that there are places for God's transforming power to work in our lives. And that is the truth that the Apostle Paul holds out for us this morning. God's word holds out this mountain of truth. And I'm just going to be honest from the beginning that there's aspects of this that I struggled to put into words, but we're going to try this morning. There is a mountain of truth here that is intended to set you free. Intended to set you free from the worldly wisdom that, you're, that, that you and I are so often tempted to follow. To set us free to experience the joy and the life and the hope and the peace and the transformation that comes through Jesus. That's where we're going to go this morning. And, and this truth that is held out for us comes in the form of a command and a promise. Here it is. Do not boast in men or the things of men because all things are yours. Do not boast in men or the things of men. Why? Because of this great promise, all things are yours. And so this is the truth we're going to consider. And I want to break this statement down into two parts. The first, the problem of boasting. And the second, the promise of all things. And so as we saw last week, verses 18 through 23 together all kind of serve as a summary of the argument the Apostle Paul has been making in chapters 1 through 3. And Paul reiterates his point here in these verses about the foolishness of what the world calls wisdom and the wisdom of what the world calls foolish. In verses 18 through 20 that we saw last week, Paul makes this argument that do not, excuse me, let no one deceive himself. And to become wise, you must become a fool. And then in verses 21 through 23, he crescendos this argument with this incredible truth and promise, all things are yours. So he's landing this plane with this incredible, um, praiseworthy, he's just this sort of exalting God and all the goodness that he's given us, all things are yours. But connected to this promise is another command in verse 21. Let no one boast in men. Do not boast in men. And, and to boast means, to, to boast in something or someone means to put your full confidence and your hope and your very identity in something. You see, the Corinthians boasted in men. As we saw back in chapter one, they were saying, I follow Paul, or I belong to Paul, or I follow, belong to Apollos, or I follow, I belong to Cephas. They, they were finding their identity. They were finding their, their sense of self-worth. They were finding their sense of spiritual maturity in their identification with and even relationship to particular individuals. The Corinthians sought status in the church through their identification and relationship to these leaders. And so you could kind of think of it this way. Like, I follow Paul. He was the guy who founded this church. He's the OG leader of this church. And so I'm, I'm going to be associated with him because that's the true inner circle, the true leadership of this church. While others were looking at Apollos, who was a very gifted speaker and gifted teacher and could argue and refute with all these people and, and shut them down. And they're like, hey, this guy's gifted. This guy's exciting. Paul's kind of a boring guy. Apollos is exciting and he's young. And so I'm going to follow him because that's where the action's at. Or then you had others who were like, hey, I'm going to follow Cephas, Peter. Because Peter was part of the original 12. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He's more OG than Paul. And so I'm going to follow him because if I'm connected with him, that means I'm connected to Jesus. And wow, look at me. Look how mature that I am. They're finding their identity in leaders. They were boasting in men. And look, friends, is it not so tempting to boast in men and the things of men? Like we may not own it. We may not cop to that and say, yeah, I like to boast in men. But we do this all the time. 
Like we boast in men and the things of men, when we base our sense of spiritual maturity or our self-worth in our identification with particular leaders. Like, I like this particular teacher or preacher. I I like this leader. And because that person is known for their depth or their skill or their success, well, then I'm known for my depth and my skill, and and I'm associated with that success. I I follow the good leaders, the right leaders. And look at my spiritual maturity. Look at how much I am worth. Or or maybe we do this because we have a particular relationship with someone or a leader. And, And so because that leader knows me, But because that leader identifies me and I'm somebody that person is in a relationship with, well, then now I have self-worth. I have a sense of maturity because that leader values me. When Mindy and I were in, uh, before we were back in the Midwest, we lived in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, and the church that we were first a part of was a very large megachurch with a very well-known, popular pastor. And through the course of us becoming members and kind of getting integrated in that church, we actually had these random encounters with the lead pastor, enough so that he knew me. And I thought it was cool. And I can remember he was going to come and speak at the school I was teaching at. And so I was watching his presentation, and he was talking, and I was hanging out with some of my students. And so to impress them afterwards, I went up and said hi to this guy. And he was like, hey, Chris, how's it going, man? Good to see you. Like, it was like this, he just acknowledged me. Like, he, we, we weren't buddies. It's not like we hung out on the weekends. But there was this sense of validation that I received because this guy knew me. This really popular, well-liked, well-loved, successful pastor knew who I was. And boy, did that make me feel important. Look at me in front of all my students. Man, Pastor Chris, no, or Mr. Hemmelman, sorry. <laughs> knows somebody. He must, he must be mature because this pastor knows him and likes him. Uh, when we identify our worth and our maturity, when we identify with particular leaders or our relationship with them, we're boasting in men or the things of men. We do this when we identify with a particular group, whether it be a theological camp or a political party or how you educate your kids or your race or your socioeconomic class, your view on masks. <laughs> Anytime... <laughs> You identify with a particular group and you say, because I identify with that group, look how mature I am. Look at my worth. We do this, sadly, when the gifting and charisma of a leader, along with the sense of identity and importance that they give us, cause us to overlook serious and significant moral flaws. Friends, we boast in men and the things of men so often. And the problem with this is, is it betrays worldly wisdom. It betrays the wisdom that says, hey, you should chase success and status and image and power and comfort. Like as the moon gains light from the sun, you should gain those things in your relationship to people that have them. You should position yourself in relationship to them. You should use them so that you can have those things for yourself. This is not wisdom, friends. This is foolishness. Boasting in men and the things of men is foolishness and it's destructive foolishness because here's what happens when we boast in men and the things of men. We end up creating division and we fracture relationship because of my self-worth, my status, my identity, my maturity is based in identification and relationship to one particular group or one particular leader. Then for me to maintain that, I have to put other people down. 
like any other leader, any other group that becomes a threat to the status and sense of maturity that who I belong to does, well, then I have to eliminate that threat. I have to oppose them. I have to bring them down and tear them down. Fraction and division. Like I need my people, my leader to be the wisest, to be the smartest, to be the most skilled, the most successful, the most theologically deep. I need my group, my person to be right all the time. Do we not see this in our world? Do we not see our world awash in tribalism and fractured relationships? Do we not see one group tearing down another group? Do we not see one group trying to pull down and rip down and cancel another group so that they can maintain their status and sense of self-worth? Destructive, destructive wisdom. And too often this mindset infects the church and hurts her. Like, look at what's happening in Corinth. Those that were following Paul were tearing down those that were following Apollos. And those that were following Apollos, tearing down those that were following Peter and Paul. There was people in the church, rather than loving and sacrificing, they were tearing each other down. Rather than building each other up, they were trying to outdo each other. Like, look how much more mature I am than you. Look how much more worth and status I have than you. And the same thing too often happens in the church today, in our world, in our culture Rather than loving and serving and sacrificing, there's competition. Rather than walking in unity and peace, there is division and fighting and fear. Friends, this is the fruit of worldly wisdom. This is what happens when we follow the ways of the world, when we boast in men and the things of men and how tragic, how sad, and how absolutely unnecessary And so First City, we have to ask ourselves, to what degree is this true of you and me? Are you and I basing our sense of spiritual maturity, our sense of self-worth in our, on our identification with in relationship to particular people or leaders? Are you identifying with a particular group that gives you a sense of self-worth and spiritual maturity? Are you using leaders or other people in the church for a sense of validation? Are you tearing other people down and other groups down in order, for, in order to protect your sense of self-worth, your status, your power? Are you, are we loving and serving and sacrificing or are we competing with one another? Are we walking in fear and division or are we walking in faith and unity? And to the degree these things aren't true of us, are we guarding against them? Are, are we not just assuming that could never happen here, And are we being on guard because you better believe worldly wisdom is knocking at the door trying to come in? Friends, let us not boast in men or the things of men. Let us not boast in men or the things of men because it is destructive wisdom. And let's not boast in in men and the things of men because we have something far greater. We have a far greater promise. Do not boast in men as Paul writes in verses 21 through 23, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. For those in Christ, we don't boast in men and the things of men. We don't compete with one another. We don't tear each other down. Why? Because all things are yours. Meaning, life and people and experiences, the fullness of those things are yours. They belong to you. They are gifts. They serve you because they serve the purposes of God for you and he works all things together for your good. 
all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Look, here Paul is flipping the wisdom of the Corinthians on its head. They wanted to say, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. The apostle Paul was saying, look, in Christ, you don't belong to Paul and Cephas and Apollos. They belong to you. You don't serve them. They serve you. That all things are yours means that leaders and other people in the church belong to you. They're yours. They're gifts to you. They are for your good because they serve the purposes of God. Like as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, God in his structured order for the church gives leaders as gifts to you. Why? To build you up in Christ, to equip you for the work of ministry. As we're going to see later in 1 Corinthians, God gives gifts to his church. The Spirit gives gifts to his church and to people in the church. Why? To serve one another to build one another up. This means that all the gifting, all the intelligence, all the knowledge, all the skill, all the charisma, all the experience of other people in this church are yours. Not things to be in competition with one another and not things to be threatened by. They're yours because they're for your good because they serve the purposes of God. All things are yours. Can you receive that blessing? Can you receive that blessing in its fullness? Meaning, Can you receive that blessing even from people who are different than you? From people that maybe have different theological bents, different gifting and maybe different preferences and different style? Like the leader that maybe you don't prefer or the leader that maybe has a little bit different theology than you or the person in your, the church or in gospel community that has different theology than you or maybe different political views or maybe does things a little bit different. Can you receive them as good, like the, like the, the, the gifting, the intelligence, the skill, the knowledge, all the good that they bring to the church, can you receive that as yours? Can you see through the lens of they are here for my good because they serve the purposes of God? Friends, can we receive the fullness of this blessing? Look, when your identity is grounded in Christ, when your hope is grounded in Christ, when your comfort is grounded in Christ, when Christ is your power and your wisdom, you're set free from finding your identity, finding your worth, finding your sense of maturity in other people. And when you're set free from those things, guess what? You no longer compete. You no longer compare. You no longer have to tear down others in order to build yourself up. Rather, you can receive the fullness of the blessing from God, all things being yours. Look, there is so much blessing, so much grace, so much hope, so much abundance among the body of Christ, so much opportunity to grow and to know Christ more fully that we miss when we shrink our world to just this small little predefined, predetermined list of people and acceptable things and box everybody else out. Friends, can we not be like people who would show up to this immense, vast banquet full of multiple different kinds of food, rich food of every kind, and just go huddle in the corner and eat one thing? Can we not be like that? (laughs) Can we receive all the abundance that Christ has for us in the church Because when we find our identity in Christ and our hope in Christ and our maturity in Christ, we're set free and all things are ours. From this particular focus, 
Paul then expands the scope of this. And here's where things get really good and kind of hard to talk about. <laughs> he, he expands this and says, not only are all people yours, but all things, whether the world or life or death or present or the future, these things and all they entail are yours in Christ. Now, why does Paul go here? Why does he go from leaders to these things? Well, consider, these aspects of existence are places of great conflict and tension. They're aspects of existence that can probably provoke a lot of fear in us and making them areas where we try to control, things we try to control through worldly wisdom. And so Paul presents this giant, glorious mountain of theological truth Truth that we cannot fully grasp and wrap our arms around in order to show us just how far the sovereign goodness, power, and purpose of God is for us. And just how much grace, just how much goodness, just how much blessing there is when we move away from worldly wisdom and find our hope in Christ. If you are in Christ, the world is yours. Look, the world, yes, is in rebellion against God. Yes, the world is enslaved to sin and evil. Yes, the world is, in a sense, controlled by evil spiritual forces. But never forget this. This is still God's world. He is the sovereign creator. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. This is God's world. And so the things of this world, whether they be nature, whether they be art and music and food and technology and people and relationships and work, whatever it may be, these things are ours because they're gifts to us from God. Look, we're not controlled by the world. We're not to be controlled by the world, but neither are we to run away from it. Look, the world is this incredible canvas on which we experience the goodness of God and through which we serve God for his glory, right? Here's how pastor and author Scott Lindsay explains it. Are we to be distinct from the world? Yes, we are not of this world, and yet we are to be most definitely in the world. We are not to have this essentially negative, life-denying, suffocating, fortress-like, big bad wolf mentality about the world, but rather one that is distinctive by what we embrace as well as what we deny. We are to engage with the world. All things are ours and reject that which is false, surely. But at the same time, we are to vote just as much energy and creativity to embracing that which is true and good and right and lovely and which speaks of the wonder and beauty and the truth and the majesty of our creator, God. The world is yours if you are in Christ. How very different from worldly wisdom. See, worldly wisdom will lead you to be enslaved to your desires It will lead you to be consumed by the world and the things of this world. And guess what happens? When you're consumed by your sinful desires, the world isn't yours, you're the world's. The world doesn't serve you, you serve it. That's the end of worldly wisdom. Or how about this one? Worldly wisdom today will teach you to hate blessing. It will teach you to reject blessing and actually feel guilty about blessing. Look, we don't even call it blessing anymore. We call it privilege. Or even deeper, The world and its wisdom, rather than training you to see the world through the eyes of love, will will train you to see the world with combative eyes, to to set yourself against everything, to, to, to see enemies around every corner, to complain and to cancel everyone who doesn't agree with you, to, to try to grab control of everything and power over everything. That's where worldly wisdom leads. And friends, 
This isn't good. This isn't of God. But if you are in Christ, the world is yours. But the question you have to ask yourself, are you caught in worldly wisdom? Like, are you enslaved to the world and its desires? Or are you rejecting and feeling guilty at that which is blessing to you? Are you more defined by your hostility to the world and your anger and fear of the world rather than what you celebrate as true and good and beautiful and the gifts that you have to use for the glory of God? Gospel-formed wisdom, cross-formed wisdom sets us free from the world in order that we can embrace the world and receive the blessings of the world for God's purposes the good that is there, the gifts that are there, that we may serve God and glorify him. If you are in Christ, the world is yours. And in Christ, not just the world, but all of life is yours. The fullness of experiences, both good and bad are yours through Christ because, of, because as Romans 8.28 tells us, all things work together for the good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Look, life is yours. Your experiences serve you because they are serving the purposes of God, which is to conform you to the image of Christ. The blessing and the good that you receive, do you realize that is serving you? Because it's serving the purpose of God to conform you to the image of Christ. The same is true with pain and suffering. Friend, do you know that your pain and your suffering serves you? Like, this doesn't mean that pain and suffering aren't real. Like, life hurts and sometimes hurts deeply. Pain is real. Suffering is real. Or we don't walk around in denial and with this Pollyanna mindset. No, we acknowledge pain and suffering. But through Christ, through the sovereign power of God, sin or pain and suffering, they serve you. They don't define you. You, you, You're not a slave to them. They don't own you. They're not the last word over your life. No, they serve you because they're serving the purposes of God to conform you to the image of Christ. All things are yours. Life is yours. All things are yours to the extent that even death serves you. Death, our greatest enemy, serves us because it no longer defeats us. Because we recognize that in his resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated death. And if you are in Christ, you defeat death. So now death serves you. Death is now your teacher that helps you to see, get perspective and to be serious about life and to, to gain a sense of what is important. Death is now your chauffeur ushering you into eternal rest and peace. Death is now an enemy turned gardener who serves you as he serves the purposes of God as he brings forth eternal life in your body. Truly all things are ours. Truly all things are ours. That the world, that life and even death are ours, it's no wonder that Paul can say the present and the future are ours as well. Like your present, your future, they're not things to be afraid of or try to sinfully control. No, your, your present, your right now, serves you because it's serving the purpose of conforming you to the image of Christ. Your future, your future serves you because you will be conformed to the image of Christ. God will complete the work he started. Friends, all things are yours, not through worldly wisdom, not through building your own kingdom, not through indulging your sinful desires, not through boasting in men and the things of men and tearing others others down and competing with one another, not through division and fear. No, all things are yours through the foolishness of the cross. 
All things are yours as you turn from sin and turn to Jesus. As we turn away from worldly wisdom and from selfishness and pride and we humble ourselves before Christ, repenting of our sins, finding our forgiveness and our life in him, that is when all things become ours. So don't miss this. All things are yours if you are in Christ. At the end of all these, these things are yours statement, Paul says this, and you are Christ and Christ is God's. The blessing of God comes to us through Jesus Christ because Christ is God's. As John Piper reminds us, Christ is God's son, Christ is God's word, Christ is God's image, Christ is God's beloved, Christ is God's radiance, Christ is God's essence, Christ is God's heir. All that God the Father is or can be or can do for one like himself, he is and does for Christ. And because you are Christ's, all the Father is or can be or can do for a creature, he is and does for you because you are Christ. This is the great promise that we have in Jesus. This, this is what we gain through the foolishness of the cross, all the grace and the mercy and the hope and the joy and the peace and the love and the fellowship and the acceptance and the identity and the power and the glory of God are ours because of Jesus. Because God loves his son that much, he loves those who are in his son that much. Do you know Jesus? Is he your identity? Is he your hope? Is he your very life? Or are you finding your hope and your life and your identity in men and things of men or yourself? As the great 19th century preacher Alexander McLaren said, what Jesus Christ is to a man settles what everything else is to him. Our relation to Jesus determines our relation, our relation to the universe. If we belong to him, everything belongs to us. If we are his servants, all things are our servants. And so let us not boast in men or the things of men. Let us turn from worldly wisdom and selfishness and pride and let's turn to the foolishness of the cross and in that find our life and our hope and our identity in Jesus and live in the goodness and the greatness of this promise. All things are yours. Let's pray.